Well, welcome to Sunday night. If you're new, we're studying the book of Genesis and we'll tackle chapter 13 tonight. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 13, we'll get the whole chapter. And a study that I've entitled Big Bucks and the Believer. That would excite some of you in here. We live in one of the most materialistic societies that has ever existed on the face of the earth, if not the most materialistic society that's ever existed on the face of the earth. And this is a subject matter that touches home for us. And I pray as we look at the life of Abram, as he's now going to leave Egypt, he's taken this little hiatus, wrongly so, He's disbelieved the Lord. He made this journey of faith and then takes a little journey of the flesh and goes down to Egypt. He's now going to return back where he belongs. He's failed a couple of tests. He failed the fight test and he failed the faith test initially, but he's going to pass this test. And this may be one of the most difficult tests that we face here in America and especially here in Southern California because we're surrounded by Uh, enmeshed in, engulfed in massive amounts of material wealth. And we'll see tonight in the life of Abram that as he goes up, uh, he's going to go back to Canaan, a very, very rich man. And he's going to take with him his nephew Lot, and they are going to have the first dispute in the land of promise. And it will be about material things. And so would you join me? Let's pray and we'll ask God to bless the time and the word tonight. Father, we uh, ask from heaven that you'd oversee our time tonight here on earth, that you'd take your word and make it alive to us so we would understand it, that as we read it and give it the sense and the meaning, that Lord, we as your people would grow from experiencing your word imparted to our life. And so bless this time. Take and edit all these notes, Lord, for your glory and for your name's sake. Cause us to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we have the danger really of loving things. And I want to start at the onset by saying something very specific about how many people wrongly interpret Scripture, very specifically, uh, the, the love of money, the love of possessions. Possessions in and of themselves are not evil. Possessions are neutral. They can be used for good, they can be used for evil, but they all belong to the Lord. And the only thing that you actually possess on this earth, the only things that you possess, all of them, 100% of them, actually still belong to God, and he has merely loaned them to you. So it is not the possessions themselves, it is not material things, it is not money, it is not houses and cars and RVs and Boats and planes, it is none of those things that in and of themselves are wrong or evil. It is only what you do with those things that determines whether they're actually used for the Lord 
or against the Lord's purposes in your life and on this earth. And so understand that from the very onset because we're going to look at a tough subject tonight and people take two very different extremes. One is, I should just give away everything I have. If that's you, we'll take it. (laughs) The other is, I ought to get everything I can because you never know when, you know, those things might disappear. And neither of those extremes are are good in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord has a perfect plan for you, for possessions, for finances, for all those things that we would call material wealth. Uh, And that plan is specific to you, specific for you. It is specific about you. And he wants to fulfill his plans in your life. So let's look at the example that we have here in Abram. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt. Remember, when you go up, it's good. When you go down, it's bad. So he's turned the right direction. He's gone down to the world in Egypt. He's now going to flee from there. He's learned his lesson. He and his wife and all he had and lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So he spent time in Egypt. He's actually profited from it. Uh, the famine in the land has subsided, so the, the test of the fights and the famine and, and the test of faith that he failed the first time, he's now going to step out in faith and go back where he belongs. And he went on his journey from the south, which is Egypt, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning. And remember that we found him uh, dwelling in a tent. He was a pilgrim and a sojourner, exactly as the book of Hebrews uh, points us to his life. He's a man of faith, and when we found him in a tent, the other thing that we found with him was an altar. And so he's returning to his roots. And this is super important for us as the body of Christ, because very often we come to faith in Christ, and we grow in Christ, and then all of a sudden we kind of find ourselves take a little step backwards. We call that backsliding, and we never quite get back to where we once were. And it's important that part of the the process of repentance is that we know God hears our prayers, that he answers our prayers. And so when we ask him for forgiveness, when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he gets us back kind of to neutral. It is our place to go forward from there. A lot of Christians either stay stagnant or they kind of just simply slip just a little bit. We're going to learn a lesson from Abram here. He actually got this test that he took when he went down to Egypt, and and he's going to apply it now. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, and remember that Bethel means the house of God, El, the shortened E-L on the end of anything is always God's personal name, and so this is the house of Bethel and Ai, the house of ruin, to a place of the altar, which he had made there at first. In other words, he was a man who took things the way God sent them to him, and he was a man who worshipped God. He's back to the tent, he's back to the altar, and Abram there called on the name of the Lord. So he gets back, in essence, to square one, where he was when he got into the land. And Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, 
And now the land was not able to support them, meaning them collectively, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And this is where it kind of touches us. It is in sometimes that quibbling over, that squabbling over, and that examining one another's possessions, in the mixing of those things that we believe that we own actually are God's, that those possessions that we own become bones of contention. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And so you have these two people uh, that will ultimately become the Hittites and the Amorites. They'll stay the Perizzites, uh, the Edomites, all these, this land of ites, if you will, uh, that will ultimately turn into all kinds of tribes that the children of Israel will have trouble with. But dwelling in the land, they're watching these two men who claim to love the Lord. Lot is a righteous guy. We're going to see that. Uh, but he's also carnal. He loves God, but his walk's a little bit shallow. And so he's going to get caught up in a few things. And by the time uh, we get to chapter 19, we're going to see that he's deeply in trouble because of the way he handles himself. And so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. And I want you to notice how Abram handles this. And we're going to see some wonderful ways that we can implement these things in our lives towards the end of the study tonight. Please, don't let there be strife between you and me. These things are not worth it. These material possessions, if they're going to divide us, that's not a good thing. Between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Notice that Abram defaults to where every Christian ought to default. This coming Thursday night, we're going to be looking, uh, as we begin our journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first thing that we look at is Christians in court. Every single believer on the face of the earth, their primary relationship that supersedes everything else is you are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Everything that you talk about, everything that you are, everything that you attempt to do together, all that we are as the body of Christ is superseded by the fact that I am one of God's children And because you're one of God's children, we are first brothers and sisters. If every believer took that as a primary operating function of their life, in other words, I said, the first thing I want to understand is how does this affect my family life with my brothers and sisters? We'd have a lot less drama in the church, in our private lives, certainly even in the world, because God sees us as his kids. For those of you that have kids, you know that nothing tears up your home faster than when your children are at odds. Just like when a husband and wife are at odds. When the family's not getting along, the whole world seems to kind of come unglued at that point in time. And so Abram has a very clear view of the fact that he and Lot are brothers brothers in the Lord, brethren. And so he says, is not the whole land before you? And I want you to notice how he handles this. He is the senior statesman. He's the elder. He's the one to whom God gave the promise. But I want you to see what he does with the liberty that he might take 
by simply taking what is rightfully his and telling Lot, you go someplace else. Notice what Abram does. Is not the whole land in verse 9 before you? Please separate from me, and if you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. In other words, he says, let's do whatever is best for you. Let's do whatever is best for you. If it suits you, it's good with me. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all of the plain of the Jordan. And now, to imagine where this is, the Jordan Rift Valley, when you look at modern-day Israel today, the Jordan River flows through the middle uh, of what actually begins as a Rift Valley in Africa and extends all the way up into the mountains that we would call Mount Hermon. And that valley is extremely deep. Much of it, the lower portion, is below sea level. The Dead Sea itself, more than 1,300 feet below sea level, lowest place on planet Earth. But once you get to the Dead Sea from the north of there, the Jordan Plain is very, very, very fertile. It remains fertile today. Parts of it are, are farmed to this day. Parts of it are not. Some of it, if you're on the eastern shore, would be in modern-day Jordan. On the western shore, for a very short distance, is modern-day Israel. And then the West Bank or the Palestinian territories. But that area is rich. It is fertile. And basically, Abram is saying, Lot, as we look north, we've come from the south in Egypt. We've come up through what we would call the, the Gulf of Aqaba. They've been wandering in the, the wilderness area that the children wandered in originally, the wilderness of sin. They've come across that. And now they're in the, the bottom part of the Jordan Valley. And they're looking up and they can see in the distance, they can see Mount Hermon with its snow. They can see the effects of the Jordan River flowing from the region of Dan all the way down. They, they can see the effects of the Sea of Galilee, this giant freshwater lake. And he's saying, you take whatever you want. Wherever you go, I'll go the other way. And it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll get more into Sodom and Gomorrah later. But this is an area that is believed by many today to be near the Dead Sea itself. Like the Garden of the Lord... Like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. And so he's saying, just like the fertile plain, the children of Israel, as we get into the book of Deuteronomy and, and we begin to study as their time of captivity in Egypt, they were sent to the land called Goshen, which means the best land. And that Nile River Delta was extremely fertile. And he's basically saying, look, this is just like the Nile River Delta. You can grow anything, your crops will do well, your herds will do well, you take the good part, I'll take what's left over. And then Lot chose for himself, and you can see the carnal side coming out of him. Because when you travel to Israel, there's something that you'll notice right away. There's good stuff, and there's the not-so-good stuff called the Negev, the desert or the wilderness of sin, Sinai Peninsula. And, and if you're not in the Jordan River Valley, you are in desert. If you travel to Jordan, there's literally nothing. 
If you travel to Egypt, literally nothing. If you go out into Sinai, literally nothing. So Lot in his carnality looks and says, I'll take all the good stuff. You would think that Abram would go, well, can we renegotiate our land deal here a little bit? And Lot journeyed east. They separated from each other, and Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. So he goes up into Judea, and actually he's going to settle where we would say modern-day Nablus is. He's going to go back to Shechem, actually. He'll first stop at Hebron, uh, south of Bethlehem. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And so Lot's going to kind of move around. He's going to be a little bit nomadic. And he's going to take the plain of the Jordan, all the area that's irrigated with water. And Abram, you can have the Judean foothills. And your water source is going to be the rainfall that falls. And when it comes down the canyons, hopefully you can catch some of it. You can do something with whatever you can get. But notice, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So the people that Lot brought, even though they had the best land, even though they had the greatest financial opportunity, even though they were living in Southern California when Abraham picked Yuma, Arizona... You see, if you have good things and you give good things to bad people, bad people will do bad things with good things. You can give all the wealth and prosperity and money to people who are wicked and they will use it to wicked ends. Case in point, much of what's going on in Hollywood. Not all but certainly a pretty good chunk. Massively wealth. How about professional athletes? Again, absolutely not all. But there's an awful lot of money that's not doing a whole lot of good because it's not purpose to do good. It's just wealth in the hands of somebody who's carnal. You take that same amount of wealth and put it in the hands of somebody who's good... And you're going to get a different result. And that's the picture we gain from this story here in Genesis chapter 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and now look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, For all the land that you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. The Lord gave the land that is being described here to Abram and to his descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants would also be numbered Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. 
So you have Lot with the best land, with wicked people who are in the heart of the goodness. And you have Abraham saying, I'll go where you're not to be a peacemaker. And so he begins this journey of faith uh, in the Judean foothills. As Abraham stops, as Lot travels up from Egypt, when you get to the Negev, one of the things that we actually do when we're touring Israel is we go to a place called Temna. And we go to a place called Solomon's Pillars. And as you look at this area and you, you just imagine to yourself that the children of Israel spent 40 years wandering in, in what is the driest, most inhospitable place on planet Earth. I, I've been to a bunch of deserts. If you've traveled around here in Southern California, you go out to the Mojave Desert, go to Death Valley. Uh, if you look, Death Valley in places is a paradise compared to the Negev. It is dry, dusty, wet, and exceedingly hot. And so when it rains, it's just like flash floods. It goes away. You can't find even the results of it having rained. It's just extremely inhospitable. But what Abram got, even though he took the worst land, was he got sweet fellowship with God. What Abram got was he had peace with the Lord. What Lot got was he had peace with man. And it's a picture for us in our lives that we live here on this earth you, you can have peace with man, and you can have prosperity with man, and have peace with God at the same time. But most people end up forfeiting the peace with God if they're not really careful. Because eventually the possessions take over, and you begin to fight over those things. And you, the family feuds, the stuff that I've listened to in, in my decades in ministry, uh, of families just haggling over homes and cars and uh, finances and, and things. It's like the, they, they were best friends two weeks earlier and somebody passes away and leaves an inheritance and all of a sudden the family comes apart over money. Money can be a very, very wonderful thing and it can absolutely tear people apart. And so it's kind of in view here. First Timothy, uh, I want to read this passage uh, in its entirety, and I want to deal with the misinterpretation of it. First Timothy chapter 6, if you want to turn there to verse 6. And it begins this way, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his, his younger understudy, this one that he has mentored through his early days in ministry. He's going to raise him up. He's going to give an, a, really the authority to pastor some of the churches that Paul himself started. And it says in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So he begins by saying, if you really want to have contentment, it actually comes from godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. Amen? Unless you happen to be born into the royal family of Britain, uh, when, when you come into this world, you are absolutely penniless. And it's certain that we can carry nothing out. Here's the news. You know, I, I've unfortunately been to a number of memorial services where there's been, you know, crazy, insane amounts of money spent on a, on a casket. And, and sometimes I question to myself, and I realize that sometimes people are just trying to honor the person who's gone on to be with the Lord 
But I'm looking, I'm going, there's 30,000 bucks. You're going to throw it in a hole in a couple of years. That ain't going to look so good. You know, we, we kind of have a tendency to, to look at material things as though they're going to last. When you get to heaven, you're not taking anything with you. No money, no cars, no bling, no ring, no nothing. When you get there, you're going to get to heaven with absolutely zero attachment to this earth. Because there's nothing here that's even worthy of taking there. And so Paul says, look, you can't carry anything out. And so he says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And now notice what follows. And ask yourself the simple question, is this a truth that you see in our world today? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, that's innate desire, deep desire, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition is another way of saying the spirit of Antichrist. Things that are away from God is another way to look at it. And then the verse that is so often quoted out of context, leaving out all or part of it, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice what it does not say. Money is the root of all evil. Often misinterpreted that way. It doesn't even say the love of money is the root of all evil. What it says very accurately is the love of money is a root, one of all kinds of evils. In other words, there's all kinds of things that money can do that can end up working out not so good for you if you love money more than you love God. If you love money more than you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you love money more than you love your family. If you love money in an inordinate, ungodly way, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I have talked to countless people about this very thing, and I can tell you these verses are absolutely accurate. Because when I talk to people about their desire, their, their love for something that maybe God doesn't have for them, their internal drive going on to try and have what the world says we're supposed to have. The amount of trouble that humankind can get in by thinking exactly as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy here is mind-boggling. So it's not money, it's not possessions, but the greed for more than God has planned for you that becomes a problem. You see, because God actually has intended that some people be very wealthy. 
And he is, knows and knows your character, knows what you can handle, knows what you can't handle. And he has foreordained that some of us are not going to have quite as much as some of the others. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, here's the deal. With food and clothing, start there, be content with those things. If God wants you to have more, he'll give you what you're supposed to have. But if you yourself are driven towards things that God does not want for you and you obtain them, then you've got to keep them by your own hand and you will become miserable is basically what he's saying. So be careful. This is a real heart test. Basically, the heart of every problem for us is, is almost an, assuredly and invariably uh, a problem in my heart, your heart, our hearts. That's why I said money itself and possessions are neutral. You see, it's what I do with it. It's how I think about it. It's do I love it more than I love God. And you can see that Lot loved possessions more than he loved his uncle Abram. It's like, you go live in the dry, gnarly Judean foothills because we can't get along and I'll stay down here in the fertile Jordan plain and I hope it works out for you. So Abram takes the high road. He says, look, I, I don't want to have a fight. I don't, I don't want to barter, in essence, over these things. I, I want to be a peacemaker. I, I don't want to be a troublemaker. And so we learn some lessons here. It's no wonder to me that when you look at this passage, can you imagine what Lot's servants were thinking and Abram's servants are thinking as they're looking at this transaction going, why are these guys kind of haggling over all these things? And then Abram takes one road and Lot takes the other and we're going to see how these two paths work out. And Lot's path is not going to work out well at all. It's going to go very, very, very bad. He's going to have the best things and end up in the worst place. And Abram is going to have the worst things and he's going to end up in the best place. That's contrary to our thinking. Our thinking is more has to be better. Not necessarily. You see, this test wouldn't be easy for you and it wouldn't be easy for me either if I were in this place to where they're obviously both rich. But Lot's heart is not towards the Lord. Abram's heart, and you can see it because the first thing Abram does is do what? He goes right back to the last place that he met God. The last place he could remember that he was close to the Lord. The last place that he worshipped God, like we did tonight when we started the service. It's like Abram says, look, as long as I've got the Lord, I'm good. All these camels, all this gold, all this silver, this stuff means nothing to me if I'm going to have to lose God to keep it. And so they do the Amos 3.3 thing. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? They, they in essence, had two different ways they were going to go. And when we disagree over something as, as frankly senseless as money and possessions, very often the Lord is shamed over it because we have a testimony before the people on this earth that we're believers. And so he's, he's kind of setting out 
looked at we're supposed to be as, as Jesus prays in John 17, which is this incredible high priestly prayer that he prays. He prays that I wish that they were one as I and my father are one. And so God's opinion of these things is don't think too highly of the stuff. Don't worry about the things. I've got that covered. And that unity in the body of Christ, this is Psalm 133 says, it's beautiful. But disunity takes that fragrance of Christ and turns it into something that doesn't smell so good. It doesn't pass the smell test. And so there's some lessons we can learn from Lot in this passage. And we kind of get a little picture from, from James uh, of what's going on in his heart. In verse 13 of James 3, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You know, it's one thing to have wisdom. It's another thing to be meek in that wisdom. It's another thing to not take that wisdom and beat people up with it. And Abram just simply takes the high road and, and takes the lesser of the two uh, paths, if you will. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth, for this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. For where there's envy and self-seeking, if those things exist, there's confusion. And every evil thing are there. So this very concept that they had to be separated was actually a sign that there was something wrong with somebody's heart. In this case, it was pretty clear. It was Lot. Lot had a problem with greed. Lot wanted more. Lot didn't want to be peaceable. He didn't want to go what James goes on to say. He didn't want to be that. He didn't want to be peaceable and pure and gentle and willing to yield and full of mercy and good fruits. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted what he wanted. And in the process, he loses his uncle. Basically, he wanted to stay in Egypt. And so he says, look, the love of money. Be careful. You read the book of Proverbs, you'll, you just see this long string from about Proverbs 21 on of the problems that people can end up in when, when they're overly concerned with money and possessions. They'll lie for it. They'll mistreat people. They'll cheat lie, they steal. It's mind-boggling what people who otherwise are walking with the Lord will do when money gets involved. Abram had, had caused some trouble in Egypt because it was there he was basically out of his place. And now Lot's going to cause trouble in Canaan because he's out of his place. Lot should have followed his uncle. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which we covered not long ago, there's three types of people listed there in chapter 2, beginning in roughly verse 14. But as you, as you go into chapter 3, it describes a natural man. It describes what we would call a spiritual man. And it describes a carnal man. And here you have Abram as being a spiritual man. He's saying, look, I care what God cares about. That's what I care about. I care about what God cares about. Lot says, I care about what I own. I care about my flesh. That's what carnal actually means. Exactly the same as it is in Spanish. Carne, it's meat. It's, I care about my flesh. So Lot's carnal. He knows God. 
But he's not walking with God. He doesn't honor God. But Abram, on the other hand, was a friend of God. Wanted more than anything else. Just exactly as the prophet Isaiah would write in Isaiah 41. Abram is the friend of God. Israel was a servant of God. Jacob was the chosen of God. And the descendants of Abram were the friends of God. Abram wanted to be God's friend. Lot wanted to be a James 4 friend of the world. It's like I'm more concerned with making sure that I have what the world has to offer instead of what God has for me. And we have to be careful. Very often people will come and they'll ask for all kinds of advice on things they're going through and I'm glad to to you know speak into those situations as the Lord would have me and and maybe speak some wisdom into it but very often it boils down to if you've got to forfeit your relationship with your Lord I can guarantee you it's not from God if you've got to give up your witness I can guarantee you it's not of God God's not going to put you into some profession that's going to cause you to tarnish his name. If it's going to destroy your family, I can pretty much guarantee you it's not from God. If it's going to crush your personal witness, I can pretty much guarantee you it's not from the Lord. We have to be concerned about being God's friends. That may make us an enemy of the world. Very often people will ask, you know, simple questions, and they're honest questions. I want to be really, really careful here. Very honest questions. They're interviewing for a job, and they'll express to me how they, you know, they're in this interview process, and there's all kinds of people engaged in it, and they'll, they'll say things like, well, everybody's lying on their applications, and if I tell the truth, you know, my application won't even be on the, they'll throw my application out. Then I said, you want them to throw your application out. If you've got to lie, if you've got to cheat, if you have to deceive, if you have to steal, if you've got to slander and gossip, if you've got to do those things to get that job, that job is not for you as a believer. If you've got to sell your character, if you have to tarnish your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's not from God. That's just going after the things of the world, and you'll pay a price for it. And when I say that, I recognize that we, we need to be employed. We need to have income. All those things are true. But these are areas where, just like Abram is doing here, he had to trust God that somehow in that barren Judean desert, God was going to keep his promise and take care of him. Abram was unwilling to go the way of the world. So I'll take my tent and my altar, but friendship with God over all the stuff that this world has to offer all day, every day. And that is the attitude we should have. There's four things that I want to boil this down to. Because Abram was a friend of God. And you can see it. Abram lived for others. He was others-centric. He did not live for himself. He immediately says to Lot, look, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You take what you want, I'll take what's left over. That is exactly what 
Jesus said about himself. The Son of Man came not into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's exactly how Jesus lived his life. And Abram says, look, that's what I want to be. I want to be other-centered. When I was down in Egypt, I was trying to take care basically of myself. I learned my lesson. I repented. And, and now he wants to do the Romans 12 thing. I want to be kindly affectionate. I want to honor you with, with brotherly love. I want to prefer you, Lot, even though you're carnal. I still want to be right with God. So whatever you need, you take it. And so he gives Lot the first choice. He, he cared about Lot. You're going to get an opportunity here in a couple of weeks, actually two Sunday nights, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after Gail, Gail Irwin will actually be doing Sunday nights. And, and he does a whole study on, on the Jesus style of being other-centered. This is Philippians 2 says, we're not to look out after our own interests, but look out after the interests of others. Primarily, we're other-centered. And so Abram does that. Abram lived a life of faith. Not by sight. As, he, as he's looking out at those barren Judean foothills, when you, when you travel up the Jordan Valley and you're beside the Dead Sea and you're looking up in the area like Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, you're going, man, how did anybody ever live here? When you look at all these water channels that are cut into the canyons to where they took rainwater and put it into cisterns and saved it so that they'd have some water when it wasn't the rainy season and you're just like man it is just i can't even imagine i mean we've been there when it's been 115 120 degrees and you walk outside you leave your hotel and you're like man people lived here before there was hotels it's like blazing hot and basically abram says i trust god so much I don't even know where we're going to get water from. And without it, you're not going to live more than about two or three days. I don't know where we're going to get water, but I'd rather be out there with no water with God than over here with water without God. That's someone who has faith. He's not walking by sight. Sight would have said, stay in the Jordan Valley. That river as it comes in, that's fresh water on the other end. It may be salt in the Dead Sea, but you get up to the other end and there's fresh water coming in there. At least you'll be able to grow some crops. You'll have some water to drink. Lot looked to Sodom. Abram looked to God. Lot looked at the flesh. Abram looked at the spirit. Those are faith things. And so very often in our life, our choices, our outlook determines our outcome. How I initially start gazing, when I look at the world, if I look at it through the eyes of faith, I'm going to have a better chance to have a good outcome. If I look at things through the eyes of my own flesh, my own flesh if I look at things through the world's viewpoint, if I stare at things through the lens that's not God, I, got, I have a very, very high degree of likelihood that I am going to experience things from an ungodly position, and thereby the outcome is going to be greatly hindered by that decision. 
And we're going to see that in the life of Lot. He's going to make a mess of things. Lot first looked toward Sodom. Then he moved toward Sodom. And finally, he moved into Sodom. Do you get it? First, he's looking and he's going, well, you know, that's, that's a good-sized city over there. It looks like they got something cool happening. They got a Costco. It's a bowling alley. I think there's a beach over there even. He didn't want to quite move because, you know, Uncle Abram said, you know, I'd stay away from there if I were you, their nephew. Before you know it, we'll, we'll just get a little closer. We won't actually go there, but, you know, I mean, we might be able to sell some things to people passing by heading towards Sodom. So we'll set up the Sodom shop right here. But eventually he moves right into Sodom. He's like in downtown. And before you know it, he's doing the same things that everybody else is doing. What happens? It's actually a picture, a very good picture of Psalm 1. In action. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't even walk there. Nor stands in the path or stands with in the path of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There's a process there. And it's the same process that Lot undertakes. You see, it's one thing to kind of walk with some people of fair ways when they're going the wrong direction. You can kind of hang out and then it's like, nah, we'll just kind of walk over here. But when they start standing around, mulling things over, it gets worse. And finally what happens is you just sit down and make nice with them. You start camping. And you end up in a place you never thought you'd go. But in contrast to that, verse 2 says, but his delights in the law of the Lord. So it has this negative example. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the path of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on, in his law, he meditates day and night. Because that person actually will be like a tree planted beside the water brooks. Abram chooses that path. Lot says, I'm going to walk with the ungodly. I'm going to stand with the sinners, and I'm going to sit down with those who scorn the Lord. Because remember, we already know that his servants are wicked. He'll take the wicked sinners over his righteous uncle Abram. Bad choice. And so to that end, Abram lets God choose for him. Lot's gone away. Abram has another meeting with the Lord. Lot lifted his up, his eyes up, and he sees what the world has to offer. And Abram says, look, I, I, I don't care. He can have all the land. I'll keep my tent and my altar. In that sense, God chose for him. 
And by the way, in case you missed it, the land's all still Abram's. Lot only thought he had it. Remember where we started tonight? The land belongs to the Lord. The land of promise, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has always belonged to God. And so in that sense, he's only loaned it to people. And so Abram makes this choice. I, I want to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to trust him. If he wants all this land to be mine, he says it's his. He's given it to me. I'm going to trust him that it's actually mine. It's a great place to be. Basically, Lot says, I'm going to take it. And Abram's saying, I'll give it. It's yours. You can have it. If it means we're going to have to have a contentious relationship, it's yours. Abram walked by faith. It really is our faith in God that determines how much of his blessings we actually get to enjoy. Because you can have an awful lot of stuff and enjoy none of it. Or you can have almost no stuff and be some of the most happy people that you will ever meet. I was down in Brazil a number of years ago and we were ministering to a couple of indigenous villages and in these villages, these two young boys had managed somehow to capture the biggest frog I have ever seen in my entire life. This thing was like a five-pounder. I mean, it, it was huge. And they had woven a little piece of kind of some, looked like palm fiber or something into kind of a little bit of a rope. And so they put a leash on the frog. And they're leading, they are as naked as the day God created them. They've got no clothes, no shoes, and they've got a frog on a leash made out of palm fiber. And they've got a following of like a hundred kids. And I'm hearing this screaming of glee. It's like, ah! You know, you, you thought it was like they were watching Star Wars or something. And what they were doing is they were trying to get the frog to jump up onto a rock. And so all the kids are watching this young man who has a frog on a piece of palm fiber rope, getting the frog to jump up on top of the rock. And every time the frog would fail, you had the kids on one side, they're like, yay! And then they'd get up there and the kids on the other, yay! They had nothing. But they had everything. They couldn't have cared less about mortgage payments and Lexuses and 401ks and stuff. They didn't know anything about any of that. So happiness, contentedness is not attached to stuff. You can absolutely be content and have nothing. And their clothing was pretty much as long as there was shade over their head during the middle of the day. Their food was what they could collect. I think Abram understood that. And so Abram was thankful. He said, God, whatever you give me, I'm good with it. Whatever you want me to have, I'll take it. 
And so to that end, Abram passed this particular test. He'd failed the first two for sure. But he passed this one. Because he he began to really express that faith that he's going to become famous for by the time we get the book of Hebrews written for us. Tremendous distinction is he lets God just take control of everything. Let God take control of everything. You'll be glad you did. Because if God wants you to have it, he can give it to you. If he doesn't want you to have it, there's a reason for him not giving it to you. His word promises that he will give you your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He'll take care of the needs, those things you're assured of as a child of God. You can just rest and trust in that. The rest of it, Abraham had it right. Be centered in what others need. Live lives of faith. Let God choose for you. And thank him for whatever he allows in your life. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to have John and Sarah come back up. and We have the elements of communion available tonight. If you didn't get an opportunity earlier today to participate at the Lord's table, um, as we close in worship, the pastors come forward. Maybe you're struggling with something. There's something going on in your life tonight, and you just want to pray. Maybe it's something, maybe it's a house or a job or, you know, car troubles or bank account doesn't quite have in it what you think needs to be there. Maybe there's some type of thing that's kind of gotten between you and the Lord and you want to get that squared away. As the pastors come forward and are available for prayer, just come on up and pray. Let those things, let God have them. He, he is absolutely able. He's still Jehovah Jireh, folks. He is, he is our God who provides just as much as he's still Jehovah Rapha, our God who heals. He is Yahweh, Jehovah Sidkenu. He's our, he's our righteous. He's everything. Let him be your everything tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you that that's truth. You are our everything. And Abram made the right choice. He saw the attractions and the allurements of the world. He said, I'd rather be a peacemaker and go without than to have everything and have my relationship with my nephew destroyed. I'd rather have nothing and have a place for my altar than have everything and have no place for you, God. And so, Lord, help us with these areas that we struggle with. Lord, it's, it's tough. It's hard. We admit it. We want to be honest with you, God. We struggle with stuff. Lord, we pray that you give us the right perspective on these things. Lord, that we would be other-centered. That our lives would be lives of faith. God, that as you choose for us, if you choose something that's less than we think we deserve, Lord, that we be content with that. We thank you for loving us and watching over us and being so good to us. Lord, if you were to simply take us home to heaven, that would be way more than we would ever deserve. And so, Lord, we bless you for all the good that you have done for us, Lord. We're we're thankful for it. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.